0: Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Basteck. W.E.B. Du Bois is best known for his seminal collection of essays on the African-American experience, The Souls of Black Folk, and his magnum opus, Black Reconstruction in America, which reframed the story of freed slaves in the Civil War and the brief window of political promise that followed. Du Bois is less remembered for his support for America's entry into the First World War, an endorsement that surprised many of his black and radical allies. Moreover, he pushed for African Americans to join the ranks in the hopes of accelerating the fight for freedom at home. He would soon regret his decision, and he spent the next two decades of his life grappling with the complex legacy of the war and African Americans' experience of it. As the historian Chad Williams puts it, This manuscript, called The Black Man and the Wounded World, was Du Bois' most significant work to never reach the public, and the struggle to write it would irrevocably shape his politics. Chad Williams, a professor of history and African American studies at Brandeis University, joins us today in the studio to talk about his new book, The Wounded World, W.E.B. Du Bois and the First World War. Thank you so much for chatting with me, Chad.
1: Thank you for having me on.
0: So I think it's pretty easy to forget at the distance of a century that support for World War I was far from universal. And in fact, the position of a lot of political parties at the time was no involvement at all in Europe and in the U.S. So can you set the scene for us before the U.S. enters the war in 1918 and before Du Bois even voices his support for it? Like, what's the context he's writing in?
1: Du Bois was writing in a context that was very conflicted uh, about what the United States should do regarding the war. Woodrow Wilson uh, won re-election in 1916 on the campaign promise that he kept the United States out of the war. So there was a very strong anti-war, anti-militarist movement in the united states while at the same time there was a strong preparedness movement as well so you had these kind of conflicting arguments about whether or not the united states should enter the war versus whether or not they should stay out of the the european carnage Uh, it's important to remember by the time the united states enters the war in 1917 the war had been dragging on for three years It had been the most destructive, bloody, horrific uh, conflict in modern uh, world history. Um, And the thought of the United States entering this this conflict uh, was uh, something that that many uh, Americans uh, wanted to avoid uh, at all costs. But W.B. Du Bois, uh, he recognized uh, that this could potentially be an opportunity uh, for African-Americans and other peoples of African descent to shape the course of democracy in the 20th century and to expand it so that it included uh, peoples uh, of African descent uh, and recognize their rights um, as Americans, uh, but as human beings as well.
0: Mm. Yeah. I think this is so surprising to read because, you know, I, I think of Du Bois as a pacifist. So what kind of arguments was he making for black Americans to enlist in this famous editorial that he wrote?
1: Yeah, Du Bois considered himself a pacifist. He was a member of the Socialist Party. He put aside his pacifist uh, convictions uh, when the United States entered the war. He was very conflicted uh, about this. From the earliest stages of the war, he recognized it as a conflict over empire, um, over imperial control uh, of Africa, its human and material resources. So he was very critical of the war, but he also recognized that African Americans had a duty to their country. Uh, Du Bois very famously wrote in The Souls of Black Folk in 1903 about the double consciousness that African Americans experience, the sense of two-ness of being black on the one hand and being American on the other hand, these two warring ideals that he hoped the war would at last reconcile. Um, And he writes about feeling nearer to being an American during the war than at any other time in his life he genuinely believed that the war was the moment when african americans were going to be recognized as 100 american citizens and he put his credibility on the line to make that argument he writes a very controversial editorial in the crisis magazine which he edited in july of 1918 where he encourages african americans to close their ranks to put aside their special grievances, uh, to support their country and the allies and their fellow white Americans who are fighting to make the world safe for democracy. He genuinely believed at the time what he was writing, but he was heavily criticized for it. His harshest critics accused him of being a traitor to the race. And he would have to live with the weight of that criticism, the wounds of that criticism um, for much of his life.
0: Yeah. I mean, uh, some of the criticism, too, has to do with some of the the behind-the-scenes stuff that was going on at the NAACP at the time. Mm -hmm. What's that context? What was the criticism leveled at him there? Yeah.
1: So as Du Bois is writing Closed Ranks, uh, which is really one of the most controversial editorials in his career, he's also applying for a captaincy in the Military Intelligence Division, part of the War Department. So once this reaches the public is just a national furore about where Du Bois's loyalties really lie. Is he truly loyal to the cause of civil rights, um, of protecting the dignity and advancement of the race? Or is he capitulating? Uh, is he capitulating to uh, American nationalism and, and propaganda and all the pressures uh, of war? Um, and that was uh, a dilemma uh, that he had to, to really uh, reckon with. Uh, within the NAACP, I many of his, his allies uh, began to to question his his motives and his leadership uh, stature, as well as outside of the NAACP as well. So by the time the war comes to a conclusion uh, in the fall of 1918, uh, when he begins to write this uh, epic book uh, on the black experience in the war that I talk about uh, in my book, he's really at the most precarious point in his in his life and career, and searching for a way to explain, to understand just what the war meant and his own complicated place in it.
0: That's also the period in which he was able to see sort of firsthand what conditions were like for African Americans abroad in Europe. Can you talk a little bit about that, about whether he was at first sight vindicated by what he wrote?
1: Mm. So he's tasked with writing The History of the Black Experience in the War in October of 1918, right before the armistice. Uh, And he goes to France. Uh, He's able to get a passport to France, uh, which I chronicle in the book, all the -the behind-the-scenes machinations of how he's one of the few African-Americans to get a passport to go to France during the peace conference. He organizes a landmark Pan-African Congress in February of 1919, but his principal mission as he described it, was to conduct research for his book and to talk directly with African-American soldiers and officers about their experience. So he meets with them in the camps. He travels to the Western Front. He sees the trenches where they fought, and they describe to him the horrific racial discrimination and institutionalized white supremacy in the United States Army. And through these conversations and through the documents and materials that they provide to him, Du Bois establishes an incredibly close and personal connection to the men that he is ultimately going to write about. And he begins to really see the war... um, in, in a much more intimate way because of what he experiences, what he sees uh, with, his, with his own eyes, the destructive nature of the war. And this is really the beginnings of a, a process, um, a decades-long process of disillusionment uh, with the war and his initial support for it.
0: Mm-hmm. He spends a lot of time <laughs> to comparing French and American treatment of soldiers, of Black soldiers, um, both American and colonial. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's super interesting, too, because Du Bois was not, you know, blind to the reasons for the war. As you said, he wrote about how it was an imperial grab, yep. had a lot to do with expansion in the colonies in Africa. France actually gained territory after yeah. World War I. And yet Du Bois just, you know, extols this racial egalitarianism.
1: He really does. And one of the things that I explore in the book is Du Bois' own contradictions. Mm-hmm. Um the tensions that he's wrestling with internally uh, about the war, about its uh, legacies, about its uh, participants. Uh, And much of this is shaped by his disgust with American racism and white supremacy that he experiences firsthand uh, when he travels to France. um, And he juxtaposes the the racism that black soldiers uh, experienced uh, with the uh, uh, so-called egalitarianism of the French, uh, who were really happy to receive any type of help they could uh, at this point uh, in the war. Um, But Du Bois, uh, like many other African Americans were, uh, were kind of seduced by this image of French racial uh, egalitarianism, juxtaposing that uh, with uh, the the harsh racism of the United States. Uh, So in thinking about Du Bois's relationship to the war and his historical interpretations of it, one of the things I really explore in the book is how his belief, uh, how his desire uh, to find some type of positive outcome in the war really blinded uh, his, his historical analysis and critique um, of France in particular.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, another big disillusionment for him were the events of of 1919, um, the lynchings, the violence against Black Americans that would come to be known as the Red Summer. How did that affect Du Bois's read on the war and its possibilities for Black emancipation?
1: Yeah, so Du Bois returns back to the United States uh, in March of 1919. He writes a series of explosive um, articles for the Crisis uh, magazine. While at the same time, black soldiers are returning back to the United States uh, as well. And they're being welcomed with horrific racial violence. Race riots explode in Washington, D.C., in the nation's capital. Black men uh, being assaulted literally right in front of the White House. In Chicago, um, a race war uh, explodes in the streets of of, of that city. Full-scale massacres uh, in the South, in Arkansas. Black veterans being attacked and lynched, some still in uniform. James Weldon Johnson, Du Bois's colleague uh, in the NAACP, described this as the Red Summer because of the the scale of the bloodshed and violence. And Du Bois had to, to reckon uh, with this. Uh, he was stunned uh, by uh, the violence uh, that he witnessed uh, in in the streets uh, of of America, um, and he had to try and find some type of, of meaning uh, in, in the war uh, in relation to uh, the violence taking place in America as well as in other parts of the world. Um, a book he writes in 1920, uh, Dark Water, uh, is reflective of that moment, uh, that 1919 moment of disillusionment. And Du Bois writes very poignantly and, and very prophetically, how great a failure and a failure in what, does the World War be token? Really a remarkable question he's asking as early as, as 1920, and as I write about in the book, that type of um, questioning about the failure of the war really foreshadowed his own failure to, to write about the war, uh, to, to ultimately make sense of it as a historical moment, and his own very conflicted place in it.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, and in writing this, this book project, this like decades long reckoning with that, he does solicit a lot of materials and um, letters, photographs, all kinds of things from black soldiers who had served in World War One. I'm curious in your review of those documents in your review of what Du Bois has written about it. Do you feel like they like, what is their take on their role in the war? Does it differ from Du Bois's?
1: The relationship between Du Bois and black soldiers and veterans is really one of the most interesting aspects um, of this history that I explore in the book. Du Bois essentially used them as proxy research assistants. When he goes to France, he establishes these close personal connections with many of these men, many of them who were were officers. And he implores them to send him their personal materials, letters, diaries, military documents, documents maps, all types of materials so that he can make the history that he's writing 100% accurate and irrefutable. Um, And they believe in him. They believe in Du Bois. They view him as, as a savior. He's going to be the one to tell their story, to tell the history that they experienced in the right way. Um, and ultimately, he doesn't live up to his end of the bargain. right? He doesn't complete uh, his book. And many of the materials, most of the materials that he received, he never returned um, and are still uh, in in the archive.
0: Oh, that's a big ethical dilemma. It really it? is, yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, I know, I realize you wrote a whole book about this, but um, obviously the experience of black soldiers and officers in World War One was not monolithic by any means. It, people have different experiences of that time. You know, how varied were those? Like, is one of the difficulties that Du Bois had in writing about it that there were just too many perspectives to synthesize?
1: Yeah, so it's certainly a, a big history yeah. uh, that Du Bois was writing, uh, that he very quickly realized the enormity of the task ahead of him in writing about the entire Black experience in the war. There were approximately 380,000 African American soldiers who served in the United States Army. The vast majority were labor troops, uh, but there were two Black combat uh, divisions, the 93rd Division, primarily National Guardsmen, and the 92nd Division, which was made up of draftees and had black officers. Many of those men uh, Du Bois knew personally. So he felt a, a desire to vindicate their service uh, to demonstrate that black soldiers had made significant contributions uh, to the war. And as a result, African-Americans more broadly were deserving of increased citizenship rights and recognition as uh, full American uh, citizens. He also envisioned uh, his history as a diasporic uh, history. He wrote about the experiences of black troops in the French military, um, black soldiers serving in the British military. He Connected it to the development of Pan Africanism and his Pan African movements uh, that he developed uh, throughout the 1920s. So he was writing uh, an incredibly ambitious and, and massive history, uh, which uh, in many respects uh, was kind of the cause, one of the causes for why he wasn't able to, to finish it. Uh, but ultimately, it was Du Bois' own. Uh, inability uh, to, to reckon with what the war meant uh, and to find any type of positive redemptive outcome in the war, which prevented him from from writing what I argue would, would have been one of his most significant works of history.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, how do you think that World War I and, and his struggle with it factored into his movement further left politically?
1: World War One was critical to Du Bois' political evolution, uh, and this is something that uh, historians really haven't fully uh, explored. And something that I really emphasize in the book is that we can't understand Du Bois' and the evolution of his radicalism uh, particularly by the 1950s when he becomes uh, a radical peace activist without understanding the significance of world war one in that process how he goes from 1918 to calling for african americans to support their country and close ranks by 1951 the federal government has him on trial um, is ready to put him in jail because of his anti-war activities it's really a remarkable um, evolution uh, in terms of his, his radicalism, his commitments uh, to peace, which his reckoning uh, with uh, the history and legacy and troubling personal memory of World War I played an extremely significant role in him.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's really poignant, too, that he sort of closes the lid on the book just as World War II is, is beginning.
1: Right, right.
0: How do you feel like you know World War II beginning affected him?
1: I think it's not a coincidence that he decides that he's not going to to finish and publish right um, on the the eve of World War II. He realizes that essentially it's too late, that the lessons that he hoped to impart uh, to the world about the horrors of, of warfare through the writing of his book, um, it, was, it was too late uh, at that point. Um, and it's really the, uh, the, the exclamation point on his disillusionment uh, with uh, World War I as the world uh, careens into an even greater catastrophe.
0: So from the scale of your book, and from the scale of Du Bois's book, some 800 pages in its unfinished form, um, it seems pretty massive, you know, a massive undertaking in his career. And I was surprised that I never really heard of it. um, And that it hasn't really been a major talking point in conversations about Du Bois. Why do you think it's been overlooked by historians?
1: That was one of the first questions that I had when I discovered this manuscript back when I was in graduate school doing research for what would become my first book, Torchbearers of Democracy, uh, uncovering uh, or rediscovering this 800-page manuscript that Du Bois spent over two decades uh, working on, in addition to all of his research materials and correspondence uh, related uh, to this book. I think it says um, a lot about how historians have not fully recognized the importance of World War One in African American history, uh, in United States history uh, more broadly. World War One is still seen as kind of the forgotten war, uh, you know, really sh- in the shadow of World War Two, uh, uh, without question. Um, but also thinking about the significance of World War One. Throughout the entire trajectory of Du Bois' life, work, and political evolution, beyond just the war itself, how the war continued uh, to shape him throughout the 1920s and 1930s and and beyond, Uh, you know, I I, end the book in the 1950s. Really coming full circle uh, with with Du Bois um, as as a radical peace activist. Uh, so I think it's just the the inability of of scholars to really take World War one seriously um, and to 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 examine the centrality of the war in Du bois's um, in Du Bois's life uh, and his scholarship.
0: Do you feel like part of that is is because it's so hard to square with the rest of Du Bois or because, you know, you know, not even he could really acknowledge that he was wrong about this. He tried. He really did. But he couldn't even put this book out. He couldn't even return those documents to all of his proxy assistants.
1: Well, in my book, I try and present a Du Bois that we haven't seen before. Uh, A Du Bois and certainly all of his brilliance, but Du Bois as a failure. Uh, Mm -hmm. Du Bois as a failure when it came to ultimately completing uh, what would have been one of his most significant works of history, but also a failure uh, in his decision uh, to support the war. And I think that's something that scholars of Du Bois have always kind of felt very uncomfortable with. Du Bois is such a revered and towering figure in uh, the Black intellectual tradition in particular, and to view him as a failure in any uh, way, shape, or form uh, is something that uh, historians and, and other scholars have not you know, really I- explored. And that was something that certainly I was hesitant to do uh, initially. But something I ultimately found very generative uh, in thinking about the ways in which, yes, uh, Du Bois failed, but it was that failure that shaped uh, his brilliance, that shaped his radical commitments, that shaped uh, his devotion uh, to fighting for peace, uh, particularly in the latter years um, of his life. Uh, so failure, in, in Du Bois's case, uh, was very important, and I think it offers important lessons for, for all of us uh, today to think about the ways uh, in which uh, failure uh, can indeed be Uh, a good thing sometimes.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, it was a failure, but it was also, you know, he changed his mind. He really did. It's not like he wrote that one opinion and then never went back on it. You know, he did change, you know, and I think that too is really hopeful that you can, even someone as great as Du Bois can make a mistake like that. And then more importantly, can learn from that mistake.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it's the enormity of what Du Bois was reckoning with. He titled his book, The Black Man and the Wounded World. It's just incredibly evocative title. And he's grappling with an incredibly poignant question. What does it mean to live in a wounded world? What does it mean to live in a world that's scarred by war, by violence, by racism, by white supremacy, by economic exploitation, by colonialism and empire? What does it mean to, to write in the context of, of a wounded world. Um, and these were questions that Du Bois, as great as he was, continued to, to, to wrestle with throughout his life. He didn't always have the answers, but he tried. Um, and I think that's something that we can take away uh, from him and also you know use it to think about you know what does it mean to still live in a wounded world uh, today and our own commitments to, to trying to reckon with the wounded world. <music>
0: We have links in the show notes to Chad Williams's new book, The Wounded World, W.E.B. Du Bois and the First World War. And I'll never pass up an opportunity to link to the words of Harry Patch, who was the last surviving British Tommy to fight in World War One, and who spoke passionately and eloquently against war until he died in 2009 at the age of 111. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp.